series is called Wide Right. The reason it's called Wide Right is because we're talking about failure. And there's no more quintessential sports failure than this moment where a kicker is on the field all by himself and the game hangs in the balance. And this kicker knows it's up to him. And of course, that's not totally true, but that's exactly how he feels. And this feeling is, of course, that it's up to me if it's to be. And if not, uh, I'll never live this down. And he knows. The kicker usually knows. He can name this kicker and that kicker and that one. He rose some and some that have blown it and ended their career at that team, that very moment. Life right. So we'll show you another clip of a kicker. Before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about this idea of failure. We talked success and failure last week. And we said the point of the series is this. I believe that our, our views of success and failure need to be transformed. They need to be changed deeply from the inside out. Because what you believe is a success and what you fear is failure drives much of what you strive for, who you present to others, what you show on the outside, and what you hide. And all of this can really sabotage not just your contentment, your happiness, your peace. It can really get in the way of your relationship with God, and that's where we're going today. This, this idea of success and failure will now kind of translate into maybe some spiritual terms that are judgment and loaded, like sin and disobedience. And we'll talk about what they mean and why that means. Now, here's the thing. When you and I find ourselves in a place where we make a mistake, or we do something we shouldn't do, or we experience some grand failure, especially if it is public or known, so the other day, I'm leaving the grocery store. I'm leaving the grocery store. I'm walking across that place out front of King Super's where you know, traffic is and people are. And the asphalt jumped up and grabbed my foot. And uh, as it did, I almost went down. I mean, it was close. And, you know, I had a couple big lunges and it was ugly and you know, I made a great video. Now, my first thought was not, you know, oh, I almost fell. My first thought was not, oh, but I didn't fall. What was my first thought? Who saw? And so I, so I stopped and looked, you know, and they caught some eyes, you know, and they're like, oh, should I look? I don't want to look. You know what that's like when you see somebody, you're like, I don't want them to know I saw. Unless you're, you know, some of you people are just rude. So you're like, I'm looking and laughing and you don't care, right? And so when these things happen, you begin to start to think things like, oh, I, I don't walk very good. That just happens all the time. I guess I'm just a klutz. And failure seems to about failure. Failure puts you in a place where you begin to expect failure. Success is the same way. And why we define them success and failure is why it matters so much. We see this in sports all the time. So last year, during the NFL season, there was a kicker for the Bears. His name was Cody Parker. And as he got near the end of the season, you're playing the Lions. As you in the middle of this game, early in the game, so you will remember exactly what I'm talking about. I'll show you a clip here in a second. Cody gets up to kick it. Now, uh, a field goal kicker, an extra point kicker, the, the uprights, the space between one upright to the next upright. Anybody know? 18 feet, 6 inches. I mean, it's big. I mean, I know it doesn't look big from 40 yards, but it's still big. The size of an upright, the literal size of the upright, about 6 inches. So Cody Parker gets up, makes the kick, flies right. Into the upright. Bounces right off. And it's possible. Sometimes they go in, right? You see one in there, uh, 10 that goes in. This one just bonks hard and comes right back toward him. 
practice hitting the upright. So then it comes down to the last game of the season. It's the Bears versus Philadelphia. And uh, in this wild card game, in the playoffs, of course it comes down to a field goal. idea of a target and this arrow in the middle of the target. This is how sin is defined. For most of us, if we teach sin and disobedience to kids, this is a pretty popular concept or idea. And there's a reason for it. It's a common understanding of sin. The idea is, is that perfection or the idea of what should be is the yellow spot in the target. In my life, is this arrow, and it's pointed toward what should be, but every now and then, you know, maybe it's my desires, maybe it's me just being lazy or not paying attention, the arrow goes askew, and maybe hits that blue ring, or maybe, goodness, maybe the white ring for some of you who are real sinners, or, or maybe maybe the target is just, you know, maybe you miss the target altogether, you weren't even trying, right, who even cares, 
Parthia. You see the Greek letters there. But it means literally to miss the mark. It's important to grasp this because our understanding and theology of sin is based on this very simple idea. Now, to miss the mark is an old ancient Roman idea. It's a Roman concept. When Roman archers were practicing, they would get in a large field, and it was so large they couldn't even see the target fully and completely from where they were shooting their very long bows, their arrows, shooting very far away. Of course, this was critical to battle. This wasn't just for fun and sport. They had to eat and play, and they were fighting this way. And then they would be across the field, so that archer would be on one side. Way on the other side of the field is this target, and right in front of the target is a big trench. It is dug in. The Roman slave would hide in that trench while the gentleman, whoever it is, is shooting this bow so that the archer could know how close he got to the middle of the target. The target means to miss the mark. So the archer would shoot. And once the uh, slave is in the trench, here's the arrow hit the target, you would pop out of the trench, right? Hopefully nobody else is shooting you. I'm sure that happened occasionally. Lost another slave today, remember? And then he would look at the target, and he, if he missed the mark, the archer, he would yell back toward him, Promarthia! And he'd probably get shot again, because, you know, that's no good. Shoot the messenger, that's where it came from, okay? So, this idea means that you have missed the mark. It's the context. The question that we all want to wrestle with do we get that? Do we understand it? When I was eight years old, I had my new pastor explain to me, this is what sin is, you know what sin is, Bill? I think, I think so. And a little picture of a, a target, an arrow, and thinking about my life and the number of times. Have you ever sinned? Yeah, yeah, I've sinned. Can you give me an example? And so we would talk that through and how I missed the mark. The question we want to wrestle with is this one. What's the mark? What's the mark? The mark. That you're aiming for. What is it? Now, this is so important. I can't, I can't overemphasize this. You can build that edge. Be careful. If you aim for nothing, you'll be sure to what? You'll be sure to hit it. What's the mark for you? What is it? Your mark, spiritually, philosophically, principle wise, value wise. You build your life around it. Some of you have named it. Some of you are very good about this. You have done you know, the life courses and you've written a mission statement and you have very clearly defined your values. Most of us find ourselves just sort of wandering through life and I borrow a little bit of yours and borrow a little bit of yours and something my parents taught me or something I learned in church or whatever and I comprise what I think the mark is. What is your mark? What drives what you do, how you do it? and what you're aiming for. It constructs everything about our identity and what we believe we're here for. So what is it? A dry history, Old Testament, New Testament, and history of Christendom, many groups, time and time again, have returned to the, the same understanding of what the mark is. The same definition of what the mark is. Jesus had arguments with the Pharisees about it because they had a definition of what the mark was. The scribes of the Old Testament were copying the law over and over again, so they became convinced of what the mark was. And even when I sat down with my youth pastor, this was what the understanding of what the mark was. Here's what I thought the mark was moral perfection. 
realized it was a safe place to explain what I lied about. I knew, well, if I lied, you know, and, and, you know, God believed, I would get in trouble. I could pin it on my brother. I knew both of those things were true. And so that was good. I, I missed the mark. I, I shouldn't have lied. What's the moral perfection to tell the, to tell the truth? And so me, oh, 89-year-old Philip, knew that my arrow was aimed at the center, and I saw the truth at the middle, and Mom said, did you take the cookie? And I put it askew and shot it elsewhere. I said, no. Marty did it. That means I had missed the mark. I was also taught this, and both of these things are not completely untrue, but they're not deeply true either. If they are part of your understanding of theology, then you'll find yourself stuck in a few places. I was also taught this, that missing the mark means that I'll be separated from God. That's what I thought. That's what I was taught. In fact, many people even use Scripture to teach this idea that it will separate you from God. Nobody has really bothered to tell me the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. I just had this understanding, and maybe you have too. And it could be that your theology is so deeply ingrained that today you walk away more mad or confused or wondering why you heard this at church. My hope would be only to take a bit of your theology that is unhelpful and unbiblical and maybe take one whip away from it. And maybe cause you to leave with more questions than you have answers. And then we're off to a good start. And if that's the case, if both of these are true, then each of us will find ourselves stuck in some pretty damaging, hurtful, harmful cycles. Because I don't know about you, but I, I miss the mark pretty often when it comes to moral perfection. And it feels like that once I deal with one sin and I peel that later back, there's some other sin right beneath it that I didn't even know was a sin. You know, I mean, I can, I can deal with this issue of, of maybe being honest or truthful, and then I peel that back underneath it was pride about being honest and truthful. And now I start to feel back pride, and I find insecurity. And that, of course, is a different kind of sin, self-pity and inward. And time and time again, I'm missing the mark, all the while believing this idea that sin separates me from God. So I find myself wandering further and further and further from the relationship that I need the most. And the result? Alienation. Offense. From the very one who died in sin today. Well, there are a couple stories in Scripture that need to help point the way for us. And they're stories that, as I've read with the previous lens, I've been confused about what Jesus says and what happens. Maybe it will help you to piece this together. We'll start in John chapter 5. Here's what occurs. John chapter 5, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, here's what John writes. So there was uh, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, is surrounded by five covered colonnades. A lot of little details. But what you need to know for our purposes today is that John's painting a picture of this location near Jerusalem. It's near the city, the city gate. And near that gate, there are covered porches, colonnades. And near one of them is a pool. And he's describing that pool because what is about to occur takes place mostly near that pool. Now John's going to give us a little more. Here a great number, near that pool, a great number of disabled people used to lie, used to just hang out there all day long. There was a blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, and there was one man there, he was, had been an invalid for 38 years, 
and he stayed right there. This, this seems strange, doesn't it, this picture? If you can imagine it, what the scene would be like, if there's this public place, it's near a city gate, so there's traffic and lots of people coming in and out, and near one of them, there's a pool that looks like camp sick and dying. I mean, there's just all kinds of people just laying and sitting, and, and most of them are paralyzed, infirm, hurt, they're bad off in one way or another. And John goes on to describe, it's really kind of a footnote, probably added by a scribe, probably not John, but it's right there if you look in the footnotes of your Bible. Every now and then, an angel of the Lord will come in and stir the waters of the pool. And once those waters were stirred, the first one into the pool will be healed. That's what the footnote says. Now, just... Think about that for a moment. Put on your critical thinking. Does that even sound like God? Doesn't that sound like some sadistic person that would do this? So now near this pool, there are people that can't walk, can't move, can't help themselves. And every now and then, we'll just have a race with all of them. And what's the prize? What's the prize? The thing that they desperately want more than anything else in the world. And what's the prize for second? Nothing. They have nothing. Does that even sound like God? Not at all. And I read that and I think, what is going on in this passage? And what's happening? And why would that be the case? So, catch this. All these people believe it. And they live right there as often as they could, as long as they could. In other words, it doesn't have to be true to drive your life. A lot of people believe things that aren't true, and it drives their behavior, it drives their priorities, their values, their sacrifices, their anxieties. It doesn't have to be true at all. And these people will just hang out by the water do you think anybody knew anybody that had actually been healed? Of course not. Once upon a time, some dude happened to slip into the pool when it had been stirred and he felt a little bit better and legend grew. And now, there's a crowd of people waiting for the thing that they want the most. One of them is this 38-year-old man. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned he'd been in this condition for a long time. Jesus asked him this question. What's the answer? You want to hear what? Seems like a silly question, doesn't it? It's actually the best question ever. Do you want 
smithings with the Sabbath. And now the man is unlawfully working on the Sabbath. And so the teachers, the religious leaders, the scribes, those who are believing without doubt that the center of the target is moral perfection, they don't say, hey, sweet, you got healed. Nor do they say, nice man, I've never really seen him before. They say, you're breaking the law. And he says back to them, really interestingly, he says, look, the man who healed me, he told me, he told me to pick up the mat. He told me to walk. Again, we see a glimpse into this man's life. His identity wrapped up in his disability. He doesn't understand who he is, who God created him to be. Jesus finds him a little murder, and he says one of the most confusing things. I never understood it. And it's always troubled me. He says this. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. And then he says, And say it with me. You'll sound, you'll hear how harsh it sounds if you say it with your own mouth. He says, Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Does that even sound like Jesus? Does that sound like the Jesus you know? Does that sound like the Jesus that loves you? Does that even make sense? Stop sinning and or something is worse? What, what could be worse than 38 years invalid? What could be worse than me living in this place with all these people? What could be worse than me being stuck in my life? And are you saying that what happened to me is the result of my sin? So it's really grace, throw it out. There's no real equation of love and mercy that can, you know, do this, this happens. So that sounds exactly like what Jesus is saying when you read it in our translation. Stop sinning. What is the mark? The word, our mark, right there in the Greek. What is the mark? Jesus is saying, translated, stop missing the mark or something worse may happen to you. What's worse? What is it? What could it mean? These are the questions that you wrestle with. So when you come across a place of Scripture that says like it doesn't make sense to you, one of two things is wrong. Either my theology is incomplete or wrong, or I don't understand what the Scripture means. God's Word is true. It is true. It is absolutely true. So what's missing in the equation? Story number two. So just a few chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus has an interaction with some people, a woman who's been caught in sin. Jesus was teaching, and the teachers of the religious law, those who championed and put forth as the center of the target moral perfection, teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been, what, caught in a, you don't even want to say it in church, do you? Act of adultery. And so, of course, immediately we have questions like, I think this takes two people, where's the other? They let him off the hook. Always this the man that gets off the hook. What is the story here? How come this is occurring? They put her in front of a crowd, and very quickly it becomes obvious that anyone who believes that moral perfection is the center of a target, the key tools for using against people are shame, embarrassment, and fear. Always. Now the woman is there in front of Jesus. In the act of adultery. This is what the teachers say to Jesus. And John tells us they're trying to trap him. 
what you say. Why did they show up? It's a crowd. That's right. Group think. Group talk. There's always acting and shame and guilt and fear are at play. How do they go away? One by one. Who leaves first? Why? Well, they got more sin, don't you? Come on, old people, you know you do. We'll say over 50. That puts me in the category with you, all right? We got more sin, right? We, we just got to think back to last Tuesday, and then we start thinking about the day before that, and oh, well, yeah, it was lunch today, and then breakfast, and oh my, before I even got up. And so now we're thinking of all of our sins, so we're very quick to go, right? Young people think, young people think, not me, you know, I don't want to say that into account. And it takes some seasoning, some conviction. It takes you getting broken against life for you to remember that you live and walk and breathe as a sinner. So we leave one by one. And they're left. Jesus and the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And then Jesus said, Neither do I. And these are Jesus' instructions. What is he saying? Why would he say that? How long did she last? How long do you think? I mean, let's just put you, we don't know her, we don't judge her. How long did you last? Do we kind of look at a stopwatch or a, a sundial? Stopwatch is the answer. How long would you last? Why would Jesus give her these instructions? Why would Jesus remove her from this moment of condemnation and then give her a level of holiness that she could not attain? Why would he do that? That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. Why would he put this burden on her when he knows failure is imminent? Maybe that's not what he did. So what is Jesus saying to the woman? What is he saying? Go and not miss the mark anymore. So the question remains, and the question that you and I have to wrestle with is this. What is the mark then? What is the mark? The mark is many different things in Scripture to many different people. To the Pharisees and the leaders of the law, it's moral perfection. To those who are in the Levite clan and those who operate the temple, it's ritual cleanliness and ritual perfection. What keeps somebody from entering in the holy place of the temple? Well, it's you're unclean. How do you get unclean? A million different ways. That keeps somebody from God. So to them, the mark is different than from the teachers of the law, from the Pharisees and the scribes. What was it for you growing up? What was the mark? What was the center of the target? So if you're taught in your family, it doesn't matter what's going on inside as long as you appear good to all the neighbors. What's the mark for you? Listen close. No, listen. From the beginning of time, God knew that we would be a part of his creation. And he scooped up dirt. And he breathed his life into that dirt. His pneuma. His spirit. And he created me. And you. And he created us to walk in relationship with him. That we would be fully and completely known. And that we would know 
see sin, and the change is how we see failure, we get a chance to escape from the sin cycle that we see all through the Old Testament, the Hebrew nation repeating over and over and over again. We get a chance to experience our deepest needs being met in the most unique and powerful ways. It's not that sin is so wrong, believe me, it is. It's that it doesn't accomplish what it promises. You know what the seven deadly sins are. You've heard of these. Some of them are listed in the book of Proverbs and Book Gregory in the seventh century phrases list of the seven deadly sins. Name a couple for me. Would you just name one? Lust, greed, sloth. All of these things that we are drawn to. It's not that sin is so evil or wrong. Believe me, it is. But that's not why God wants us to avoid it. God wants us to avoid it because it doesn't work. You know this? It doesn't work. You long to be filled, and so you see something that can fill you, and so you shove it in your pie hole to fill you. And you don't feel filled. You feel discontent and gross. And you just, you know, it just didn't work. Look, you see what you want with your eyes. We call them lust. And you want to have intimacy and to be known and to experience union. Lust, of course, is a cheap, instant substitute. And so you grab it, and you don't feel known, embraced, and loved. You feel used and tossed aside. Sin is the wrong tool for the job. It just doesn't work. When we long to feel significant, we replace it with pride. One of the seven deadly sins, right? So we replace it with pride, and we puff ourselves up, and we find ourselves in a social interaction, and we give our resume. We don't walk away feeling significant. We walk away feeling cheap and insignificant. 
didn't hire a thing. So I, I knew that. Went on, went on dates. I get home. Yeah, very punctual my parents were, and they expected me to be the same way. And so I'd show up at five till, you know. I'd show up at two till, or whatever. And eventually it got to the place where I realized when I showed up a little bit before midnight, everybody was in bed. They quit waiting for me. And I knew, oh, nobody's watching me anymore. I can do whatever I want, maybe. I'm not sure, but I think I'll give it a try. And so I would show up and I started, you know, you know, it's kind of a gateway sit, right? So five months for ten months for and just kinda of wait and see what would happen. So when I was in high school I drove a lime green UW Beetle. And so if you know what a beetle sounds like, you know, a three W bug, or someone just like that. Um, except the muffin was wrong, so it sounds like worse. And so I knew showing up at my house, if I was gonna be late, I knew exactly what to do. I knew three houses away. I didn't cut that engine off by the coast in front of the curb. I knew when I shut the door to that car, I had to get it right now near the last and just send a little shove. I knew how to open the lock on our front door so it didn't make the normal big pipe that it would normally make. And I knew to skip the second and fourth step because they creaked. Because so I was going to come in the house and I didn't want to be anywhere near my dad.
to do it. 